friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. Now go to the Word of God. So have a look at Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Shall we rise from our seats right now? And at the count of three, let's read together aloud, please. One, two, read. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's bow our heads in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you, Lord, for this particular day. Thank you, Lord, for your sweet, sweet presence in our midst, O God. Thank you that we could glorify and honor your name because you rightly deserve it. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity also to listen to your word. I pray for myself, O God, that you might anoint me so that as I speak, Lord, I might speak with the voice of a prophet. I pray, Lord, that I might minister beyond the manuscript that was prepared ministered to the inner recessors and the inner core of needs that people might have uh, this morning. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. We are still on the Sermon on the Mount. We're still in Uh, Matthew chapter 5, as I mentioned to you, this is a long-drawn series. The Sermon on the Mount is actually three chapters of the book of Matthew. So it's Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. We are still in Matthew 5 right now, and we'll have a look at verses 27 and 28. Now, just very recently, I think it was last week, I read a news item that we are actually exporting... 600,000 nude pictures of our children over the net. 600,000 nude pictures of our children over the net. Now, many of these children, of course, have become victims, victims, sadly, by their own parents. We know for a fact that Cordova in our own province, happens to be one of the hubs of this cyber pornography. And so it is really sad what is taking place. Lust has become a major problem and sin in the world, and the ones who struggle with it get younger and younger by the day. I know of a particular parent who decided to transfer uh, their child for the simple reason that this child actually saw one of the school children masturbating in front of everybody else. Guess what age? Four years old. And then there was this five-year-old boy who continually took the cell phone of... uh, his parents, 
and he would hide in the room, he would hide in the bedroom, and so sometimes the uh, parents would scamper around, try to look for the cell phone, could not find it until they discover it is in the possession of this five-year-old boy. Guess what they discovered? They discovered that this five-year-old boy was accessing internet pornography. Four years old, five years old. And if we talk about, once again, uh, the children who have been victimized in Cordoba, just try to imagine the many pedophiles who are actually feasting on these naked bodies of our own children. Indeed, this is a problem, my dear brothers and sisters, that needs to be addressed. And the sad thing is that people often belittle this sin because they're thinking, I'm just watching porn. I'm just watching something and I'm not actually hurting anybody. I'm not actually being unfaithful to my wife. I'm not actually being unfaithful to my husband. And yet, if we take a look at the high standard of God, you and I discover that lust equals adultery. That is the standard of God. Now, I hope to change your mind if you're taking this sin lightly. I hope that at the end of this sermon, you will change your mind about your view, your, your view of lust. And so here are two points of our study today. So let's have a look at them. Actually, very simple. And we're going to talk about the letter of the law as well as the spirit of the law. This actually is something that could be part of the format or the paradigm when it comes to the other sections of the Sermon on the Mount. So first of all, in verse 27, we're going to talk about the letter of the law. Now, when we talk about the letter of the law, we're talking about the Old Testament, of course. And according to the letter of the law, there is a prohibition to adultery. Thou shall not commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments says. But then again, Jesus goes deeper. And he talks about the inner recesses of our own soul. And that's why he talks about the spirit of the law. And this is something we find in verse 28. And interestingly, not only do we find a prohibition against adultery, but notice a prohibition to lust. And then here is the equation of God. Here's the equation of Jesus Christ. Lust equals adultery. So that is the subject matter that you and I will be talking about this morning. So let's have a look at the letter of the law beginning at verse 27 as we read the prohibition to adultery. Matthew 5 verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now, you often hear this phrase mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, you have heard that it was said. Now, when he was saying that, he was actually referencing the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which was authored by Moses himself. Now, in this particular case, he's actually quoting one of the Ten Commandments. And it says here, you shall not commit adultery. Now, before we expound on verse 28, I think it's very important to create a balance here because oftentimes for some people, most especially those who are hyper-spiritual, they think that sex in itself is evil. 
I'd like to be able to make mention to you that sex in itself is not evil. In fact, I'd like to prove to you later on that sex is actually a gift given by God. The sex drive is a normal biological function. It's been given by God. It is there with every human being. Now that in itself is already an implication that sex is actually a gift from God. Could you say this with me? Sex, it's like you're embarrassed to say that. Could you say this with me? Sex is a gift from God. Can we say it one more time? All right, I can still sense your embarrassment while sharing that. Well, again, probably the reason behind that is because we have been educated not by the Scriptures, but we have been educated by the world in relation to sex. And many times, the sex education that we get out of the world is something that is dirty, something that is filthy, something that is malicious. And that is why oftentimes when we talk about sex, it's something that we're embarrassed to be open with with other brothers and sisters in the faith. But truthfully, we find that it is a gift of God. In fact, you will find some verses of Scripture, sometimes couched in figurative language, that basically speaks about sex being a gift from God. The Bible speaks openly about sex. For example, if you take a look at Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, could you have a look at this, please? It goes, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, the question is, in what sense should you rejoice in the wife of your youth? Interestingly, look at verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now, what kind of a love are we talking about here? We're talking about sexual love. And once again, the Bible speaks about this openly. There is no shame. There is no embarrassment. There is no malice whatsoever when the Bible speaks about sex. Again, it is a gift that is given to us by God. In the Bible, in fact, we find that one book is devoted to sexual language in marriage. And what book is that? It is the book of the Song of Solomon. Now, the Song of Solomon describes the beauty of sexual love in marriage. Now, of course, a lot of that is actually couched in figurative language. And so, if you have a literary mind, it's not difficult to be able to imagine what the Bible is actually talking about here. Of course, if you do not have a literary mind, you somehow have to educate your mind in regard to literary things to be able to understand it. But very clearly, Song of Solomon is a sexual book. It talks about sex in marriage. Now, it was something that became a shock even to believers and so when they were looking over the book, they told themselves, is this something that should be included in the canon of Scripture? So there was a debate that was taking place among uh, believers in the early times of the early church, and they were saying, should we include this in the canon? 
So the debate went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until finally they were completely convinced that this was really of God. So they decided this should be part of Old Testament canon. Now, by the way, the Jews could not read this book until they were past their teenage years. So again, this was taboo for those who were of younger age. But later on, when you reached a particular age, you were now allowed to read this book. Now, having said that, while I say that sex is actually a gift from God, it is a gift, however, that has been misused and abused by some people. And when I talk about misused and abused, I'm talking about fornication, I'm talking about immorality, I'm talking about sex outside of marriage. And my illustration normally in this particular case is Bermuda grass. Now, how many of you love Bermuda grass? Could you raise your hands, please? All right, not many nature lovers. <laughs> but I'm a nature lover. And one of the things that I love doing is being able to drive along the countryside and seeing all these greens, green mountains, green fields, green vegetation, green plants. It's really refreshing to the eyes. And this is the reason why some people even hire those people who could afford. They actually hire landscape artists. And one of the things, of course, that they put in the front yard or in the garden would be Bermuda grass because it's really very refreshing, most especially when you see the dew in the morning. It's really a sight to behold. However, we know that Bermuda grass is beautiful depending on its settings. How would you feel or how would you, how would you uh, see this, for example, if you put Bermuda grass inside the living room? Would it still be a thing of beauty to you? Now, you would say, definitely not. The place of Bermuda grass is in the garden. You're not supposed to put it inside your living room. And I'd like to use that as an analogy in relation to sex. Sex outside of marriage is like that. If it is out of place, it is no longer a thing of beauty. And sadly, a lot of people have abused and misused sex. It is supposedly used only within the confines and within the boundaries of marriage. And that's something that everybody needs to hear, including those who are single, including those who are young. If you're going to have sex education, you might as well have sex education here in church, not outside. Because outside, they're going to teach you some really perverted and wicked and immoral things. So where do you need to hear sex? You need to hear it inside the church. Coming from where? Coming from the Bible. So that in our study of sex, we study it without malice, without shame, without embarrassment, without any apologies whatsoever, because it is a gift given by God. And every gift given by the Lord is supposed to be enjoyed. God is a good God. He is a God who gives pleasure to His people. And God wants us to be satisfied. That is why if you go to Timothy, it says that he has blessed us with all things to enjoy. But then there is such a thing as stewardship. 
Now, stewardship basically means that we do not own anything. We don't own anything. We don't even own our own bodies. And that's the reason why in the exercise of stewardship, we need to be mindful of God's boundaries. We need to be mindful of what God allows and what God forbids. We need to be mindful in being able to use in a, in a noble and in a good way the things that He gives to us. And again, one of the things that He gives to us in marriage would be sex. Now, Jesus opens up this discussion by quoting one of the Ten Commandments. Now, when he quotes, thou shalt not commit adultery, let us be mindful that God shows his utter hatred of adultery. And how does he show it? With the penalty that he gives to those who commit adultery. And what is the penalty for committing adultery? It is death through what? Through stoning. That's why if you recall, even in the New Testament, uh, Jesus Christ was presented an adulterous woman. And what did the Jews want to happen at that time? As they presented this adulterous woman, they wanted Jesus Christ to say that let's start throwing stones, let's start throwing boulders upon this woman because this is what the Old Testament says. Now, obviously, Jesus was not contradicting the Old Testament, but he understood the motive behind that action. The motive really on the part of this people was not to hunt the head of this woman, but they were actually headhunters of Jesus Christ. They wanted to pull down Jesus Christ. So there was really hypocrisy in this act. And so what, what did Jesus Christ say? He said this, he who has, he who has not sinned, let him cast the first stone. And by the way, as I mentioned to you, the stone there were not little pebbles. They were boulders because those stones were intended to kill the person. And so they were probably holding on to those boulders, waiting for Jesus to give the signal. But when he says, let him who has no sin, let him be the first to, to cast the stone. And interestingly, they got convicted of their own sin. They got convicted of their own hypocrisy. And what was the result? One by one, they started to move away, turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ because they realized that they too were sinful. Having said that, once again, it's very clear that God hates adultery. In one other passage in the book of Malachi, he says, I hate divorce. Now, there are many admonitions in Scripture that teach on the uh, hatred of God towards uh, adultery, and we find this particularly in the book of Proverbs. I'd like you to have a look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. And once again, this is couched in figurative language, but it will be made clear that the Lord was really talking about sex in this particular case. Notice Proverbs 5, verse 15 reads, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. So if you take a look at this particular passage, is 
Is the Bible talking about Abraham's well here? Is it talking about Jacob's well here? Is it talking about any of the wells that you actually find in Israel because there's a vast desert land? No, it's not talking about any particular well. It's actually talking about the well of marriage. It is talking about the well of, of sex within the confines of marriage. And what it is simply saying is we need to be faithful to our spouses. We cannot engage in sex with somebody who is not our spouse. Remember what Paul said in the book of Corinthians? He says that if you engage in sex with a prostitute, you actually become one flesh with her. Now, where do you find that one flesh uh, dogma or doctrine? You actually find it in the book of Genesis. And that one flesh is supposedly something that can only be applied or manifested or expressed within the confines of marriage. And so the Bible is saying you cannot be one flesh with a prostitute. You can only be one flesh with your wife. You can only be one flesh with your husband. So that is what the Bible is teaching. So once again, the Bible considers adultery a great abomination. And then in verse 20, all the way to verse 23, the same uh, chapter, which tells you once again, that's the context of Proverbs 5, 15 to 17. Here's what it says. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Here, the Bible is talking about the consequences of adultery. And I've been able to counsel a lot of couples, couples who have experienced the infidelity of one spouse. And I tell you, it's always a painful moment. It's always an awkward moment, even for me as a pastor, as this couple, for example, begins to open up about their own lives, begins to open up about the infidelity. And sometimes you would, you would sense the, the, the pain, the hurt, the betrayal of one spouse, and, and tears begin to flow. And then you have the bowed head of the other spouse who produced the offense, and he has a bowed head, and he's embarrassed, he's ashamed, and of course, he's remorseful. For those who are caught, it's more remorse than it is repentance. But those who genuinely repent, you could, you could really sense that they feel the pain of their partner. They feel the hurt of their partner. They feel the betrayal of their partner. And that is why, again, it's something that you never want to get into if you are a married person. I recall one black woman who gave very wise uh, words to her teenage son. And this is what she said. She said, son, be very careful. Five minutes of pleasure can mean a lifetime of hurt. Five minutes of pleasure can mean a lifetime of hurt. And that is so true. That's why the Bible hates that. And by the way, the picture of Christ 
and the church is a picture of marriage. That's how God elevates the institution of marriage. And that is why we all need to honor and respect the, the marriage bed. We cannot defile the marriage bed. Now, as we take a look at this particular passage, what was wrong with the Pharisees? For after all, they were simply looking at the Old Testament and they actually followed the Old Testament. They believed in the Old Testament. So what was the fault of the Pharisees? Well, the fault of the Pharisees was they thought that for as long as they do not physically consummate adultery, they were fine. In fact, their reasoning was, I've not done it. It's just something that my fertile imagination has created. And so why should I be faulted with that? I'm not actually hurting anybody. I'm not really doing anything bad to somebody. I've not committed the physical act of adultery. Some people actually are not even embarrassed that they actually watch porn together as a couple. I recall one particular pastor whom we caught actually watching pornography with his wife. And so we confronted this pastor and we were surprised with the answer of this pastor. His answer was, well, I'm watching porn with my wife because we are educating ourselves. Now, can you imagine that? A pastor watching porn and saying that we're merely educating ourselves. Now, Tim Chalice came up with a very wonderful article about uh, trying to watch pornography, and he gave an illustration, and the illustration goes something like this. If you are an accomplice to a murder, you're not actually the one who pulled the trigger. You're not actually the one who, who killed a person. But you were the one who was probably setting it up. You were merely an accomplice. Let me ask you this question. According to the law, is the accomplice guilty as well? Yes or no? Is the accomplice guilty as well? Yes or no? Yes, he is guilty. And so when you're watching pornography, guess what you're doing? You're actually being an accomplice. An accomplice to what? An accomplice to an adultery that is actually taking place. You are an accomplice to fornication that is taking place. And that is why it is sin. It is an abomination to God. And sadly, right now, it is so easy to access the internet and watch pornography. And I know of a lot of Christians who actually struggle with pornography. We did actually a survey in our own church. And in that survey, we actually discovered that many Christians in a Christian setting are actually struggling with pornography. They have accessed it for some time and some are continuing to access it. And some are probably wondering, how in the world can I be delivered from this particular sin? And by the way, brothers and sisters, this is the whole point of this particular section. Jesus is actually pushing us to a wall and making us realize the lofty and high standards of God. We measure things according to our own human opinion. We measure things according to our own human thinking and our own human perspective. 
That is why the Pharisees were thinking like that. They were thinking, if I do not consummate adultery, if I'm simply imagining it in my mind, then I cannot really be sinning against God. That was the kind of reasoning they had. And I suppose and I presume that there are many Christians and many believers who are thinking in that manner. I'm not doing any harm to anybody at all. But once again, you fail to consider the fact that you are being an accomplice to something that God actually forbids and prohibits. And that's why, once again, brethren, we need to be very careful. For those of us who are accessing internet pornography, either unintentionally or intentionally, I believe this should be a season of repentance for us. Do not expect that you will have a spiritual revival if you are continuing to watch pornography. Do not imagine that you will be refreshed by the presence of God if you are watching pornography. Brethren, it is sinful. And because of that, there needs to be repentance. And that is why in the next, session, next uh, section, rather, we find that the Lord deals with this in the next verse of Scripture, in verse 28, as he talks about the spirit of the law. Have a look at verse 28, please, right now. Notice how Jesus brings spirituality to a much higher level. He says, but I say to you. Now again, was he contradicting the Old Testament? Was he contradicting Moses? No, he was not contradicting the Old Testament. No, he was not contradicting uh, Moses. What he was doing here was he was contradicting the misinterpretation of the Pharisees. He was contradicting the misapplication of the Pharisees who were saying, for as long as I do not physically consummate adultery, I'm fine. And Jesus is saying, no, you're wrong. This is what I say to you. This is how you should be thinking. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in the first part, when we take a look at the Mosaic law, there is a prohibition to adultery. But in this particular section, we actually find that Jesus is saying, no, it needs to be higher. There is now a prohibition to lust. Now, here's the big question. Was the Lord Jesus Christ actually misinterpreting the Old Testament? Was He actually adding the spirit of the law to the letter of the law? I think not. Because if you go to the book of Job, and by the way, who was the contemporary of Job? Job was likewise a patriarch, and he was actually a contemporary of Abraham. So we're talking about that particular dispensation or that particular age. And in that early stage of human history, this is what Job said. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look at the woman with lust. So Jesus was really spot on. He understood the Old Testament not only in its letter, he understood it in its spirit. 
Even Job, who belonged to the age and the time of Abraham, understood that there was such a thing as the Spirit of the law. I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look at the woman with lust. And so again, Jesus was really spot on, and he hits hard against lust. This, as I mentioned to you, is a huge problem with humanity, and man continues to grapple with this bondage. Media, in fact, knows that this is man's perennial weakness, and that is why they have taken advantage of this weakness to be able to sell their products. And I should know, I used to come from advertising, and one of our clients is Tandoy Rum, all right? So I know that, you know, if you want to sell something, you need to add certain sexual innuendos. In one particular advertisement, in big, bold letters, you find these letters, S-E-X. And then the advertisement continues on and says, Now that I have gotten your attention, I'd like to sell you this product. And the product was totally unrelated to sex. But this advertiser knew that when a person looks at, that, at those letters, S-E-X, he would be attracted to it. The attention would be grabbed. And this is what advertisers know. That is why this has been a common advertising technique. Sexual innuendos and soft drinks. Sexual innuendos and shampoo. Sexual innuendos and cigarettes. Sexual innuendos and soap. Everything sells for as long as there is that element of sex. Now you might say, is this a problem in the 21st century? Actually, no. Well, go back to uh, the Old Testament, go back to the book of Genesis, and what do you find? Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let's go back to a more recent past. What about the 1980s and 1990s? Well, here's something I discovered. Way back in the late 1980s and 1990s, all right, we're already in 2020, but in the 90s, 1980s and 1990s, over 19 million sex magazines were sold in the United States. You know how frequent? Not every year, every week. Peep show emporiums in Midtown Manhattan brought in an estimated $5 million a year. When the courts liberalized what could be put on sale, the market for salacious magazines skyrocketed. One man and his wife started publishing a filthy magazine with an initial investment of only, guess what? $350. How much did they earn in one year's time? $350 investment. In one year's time, they earned $650,000. $650,000. Can you imagine that? You want easy money? That's how you do it. But then again, that's crazy and that's sinful and that's an abomination. Time Magazine at that time reports, the market for erotic books, film, and paraphernalia, which are sold mostly to the middle class and the middle aged, has increased by an estimated 300% in the 
in the past five years. Police experts figure that the annual sales of pornography are about $500 million, and some put it to a total as high as $2 billion. So notice here, friends, this is a worldwide problem. Now, some people rationalize, maybe some believers even rationalize, well, I'm just going to take a look at it one time, one time, and after that, I'll stop. Let me just say this. If you say one time, I doubt it. It will never happen. Because when you feed the flesh, guess what? It doesn't get satisfied. It becomes even more hungry. It becomes hungrier and hungrier by the day. You need to be able to nip it in the bud because if you don't nip it in the bud, if you don't deal with that particular issue straight away, you're going to have problems. You're going to be in bondage. And here's the thing. Those kinds of, of pictures, those kinds of imagery that you see, they stick long, hard in your memory banks. And though you may no longer be looking at it, it will continue to flash back in your mind. It will continue to recoil back. And then you're in bondage once again. Friends, once again, I know that this is a struggle even among Christians. We're embarrassed to talk about it. Some of us don't want to be accountable to each other. But friends, understand this. Why is Jesus making us realize His high and lofty standard? That we might be pushed towards Him, that we might realize that the only answer to deliverance, the only answer to salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That is why we need the gospel. We need to be able to preach the gospel to people. And more than at any other time in the history of our own recent history, I think this is a time wherein we should be vocal about our faith. This is a time when you and I should be able to preach the gospel. Most especially because right now people are scared, people are paranoid, people are fearful, people are, are scared. I mean, there are so many things that are happening in the world. You have locust plagues, you have, you know, bushfires. Even in Baguio, just very recently, in Benguet, they already have bushfires, something that was unheard of before. And then you have the coronavirus. Then you have the, the uh, African... Uh, flu, uh, swine, um, what, what is it called? ASF fever. And so many other things. People are scared. People are afraid. People don't want to, to go from, from one place to another right now. And so this is actually a very good time to be able to preach the gospel to people because people are without hope. Not, they don't have genuine hope. And that's why we need to take advantage of the moment. This is an opportune time. Yes, this is a crisis moment in the world, but this is actually an opportune time for us to be able to share the gospel to people. There are many marriages probably that are struggling. Why? Because of adultery. Many marriages that are probably struggling because of pornography. Many marriages that have been, become strained as a result of this bondage. And this is now an opportune time for us to be able to share. There is hope for you. There is deliverance for you. 
Jesus Christ has paid it all. He can forgive you of all your sins. He can forgive you of your past, your present, and your future sins. And not only that, grace does not only mean forgiveness of sins. Grace also means empowering for life. Grace tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? That is the message of the gospel. Amen? The hope of this world is Christ. And that is why we need to be vocal. We need to open our mouths. Because oftentimes, we just simply have these Christian discussions, these biblical discussions among ourselves when you and I should be going out and preaching the gospel to people who need it. People are desperate. And the fact is, people are looking for answers. And they know that there's so much fake news out there in the world. They know there's so much fake hope outside there in the world. But friends, you and I have something that is genuine. You and I have something that is real. You and I have something that will truly deliver people from their woes, their problems, their dilemmas, their adversities, and their storms. Amen? We have the answer. Because we have the Bible, which is the Word of God. Amen? It is the Word of God. So again, let us push ourselves towards Christ. If this is something that you are struggling with, the Lord Jesus Christ can deliver you. This is the reason why we have been given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why Paul said, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? That should make us think. God Himself lives and dwells inside our bodies. Can you imagine that? God used to, quote-unquote, live in a temple in Jerusalem. But now, by His grace, by His mercy, He now lives in our own bodies. And you and I know that we are all totally undeserving of the grace of God. We are totally undeserving of the mercy of God. And yet, God in His goodness has paid for all our sins and has given us this grace. He has given us the God kind of life. He has given us His power. And yet, many of us have become victims. Many of us have lived lives that are defeated lives that continually lose out and that should not be the case because we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the agent of sanctification what should we do brothers and sisters since the Holy Spirit lives and dwells inside of us yield yourself to the Holy Spirit Walk in the Spirit, the Bible says. Be led by the Spirit, the Bible says. The Spirit of God has been given to us as an agent of cleansing, an agent of sanctification. Yet what is it that is lacking right now in the modern day church? A lack of reverential fear. We no longer are bothered by our sins against God, even though we know that we are carriers of the very presence of God. When Moses stood before the burning bush, the voice from the burning bush said, take off your sandals 
for you are standing on holy ground. When God spoke to the people of Israel in Mount Sinai with His thundering voice, the people had so much trepidation and so much fear, and they were shivering. And they said to Moses, don't let God speak to us, but, but be the one, be the spokesperson of God, but don't let Him speak to us. We are afraid of Him. That was the kind of trepidation and fear they had towards God. And my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Should we continue to grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for redemption? Should we continue to quench the Holy Spirit inside of us? Who has chosen to live and dwell in us though we are undeserving. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's take stock of ourselves. Let us not play a spiritual game. This is not a playground. This is a real battleground. And you know what? Satan does not rest. If you take a sleep, well, Satan does not sleep. He's awake 24-7. And is continually planning and scheming together with his cohorts, with his demons. They're continually planning and scheming how do we pull people down? How do we destroy their lives? And by the way, friends, for Satan, time is irrelevant. Time is irrelevant. Your failure could be a slow drift. Satan doesn't care if it takes 10 years for you to fall. He doesn't care if it takes 20 years for you to fall. He doesn't care if it takes 30 years for you to fall for as long as you fall. One pastor paid a dear price. He was counseling this woman who had problems with lust. And he was counseling this, this woman with, with problems with lust. The woman became very open about about her sexual misadventures. The problem was the pastor did not stop her from sharing her sexual misadventures. They continued on in these discussions several times, and the lady would just reveal many of those sexual misadventures, and it seemed like the pastor began to enjoy it. It began to linger long in his thoughts, began to linger long in his imaginations. And before long, after 20 years of successful ministry, he falls into adultery with this woman. It doesn't matter to Satan when you fall for as long as you fall. If it takes 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, he's going to do that. That is why, again, for him, sometimes it's just a slow drift. He's just slowly pushing you away from God. Do you know the story of the frog in the kettle? You know, if you put a frog in a kettle, right, a boiling uh, water, it, uh, if, you, if you put a frog in it straight away, guess what's going to happen with the frog? The frog will immediately jump out of the kettle. But try to put the frog and put a slow fire into it. 
the frog will not notice it. And later on, you have boiled frog. Don't eat that. You'll have coronavirus. Okay. That's my point. Slow. Satan sometimes takes it slowly. One little compromise. And then you go to another compromise. Another compromise. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally you find yourself in a hole. You find yourself in quicksand. There's no way to get out of it. By the way, this is the reason why in our church, we do not counsel with the opposite sex. We are very careful when it comes to counseling. And if we have to counsel somebody from the opposite sex, we make sure there's always a third party. Never alone. A man should never be alone counseling a woman. A woman should never be alone counseling a man. We disallow that. We discourage that. As much as possible, when we do counseling, it's male-to-male counseling and female-to-female counseling. And why do we do that? We just want to be careful. We just want to be prudent because sometimes there's no prudence. And, and sometimes our lack of wisdom causes a lot of failures in our lives. We need to really be very careful. Now, sadly, there are many people who call themselves Christians, but I actually do not consider them as genuine. They're fakes, and they have adopted a, a philosophy of sexual liberty. Let me share it to you. One particular Christian cult. Again, as I mentioned to you, it's a cult. It's not a real church. But look at what they do in their church. A minister who addressed a church convention of over 2,000 persons was quoted as saying, in every service, listen well, we embrace one another, we kiss one another, we feel one another. Most of our people believe in the communal life. I have not married a single couple at any church who were not already living together. One qualification for our secretaries is that they be sexy and wear mini skirts. If a woman is sexually desirable, why not tell her so? We had one of our girls who had given birth to a child out of wedlock stand before our church and tell the inner joy of having a baby without moral inhibitions. People become stimulated in our church happenings. We believe in people doing their thing and doing what they want to do. Several have become so stimulated they have disrobed. One young man came to church covered only with a blanket. During the service, he walked up front and threw his blanket down and stood there totally naked. The pastor said, I walked over and patted him and said, Man, what a beautiful body you have. This is crazy. But it's happening in the name of Christianity. Way back in the 1980s, I think I made mention of this in one particular service of ours. I don't know if I mentioned it here. Way back in the 1980s, there was a group that called themselves Children of God. And this group actually said that one of the basic philosophies that they had was loving one another. And one way by which they expressed loving one another 
is by doing wife swapping. They would hold camps. They would have it in several tents. They would have several tents. And in that camp, they would actually exchange spouses. That was happening here in Cebu. Maybe some of you are not aware of it. This was happening way back in the 1980s. Thankfully, that group has not prospered. But I know they went in so far as, as Mindanao, you know, uh, selling this, this trash and this garbage. And sadly, many people, many Christians have become very polluted already. You know what is needed in 21st century church? Genuineness. You know what is needed in the 21st century? Genuine repentance. That is what is needed. And again, as, as we look at this particular passage, notice the high standards of God. And I don't know if some of you here are struggling with pornography. I don't know if some of you are struggling with being unfaithful to your spouse. Am I here to tell you, run to Jesus? I'm here to tell you that Jesus can deliver you. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is almighty and all-powerful. I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ offers genuine salvation and genuine deliverance if you are willing to surrender your life. You know what our problem sometimes is? A failure to make an absolute surrender to God. We only surrender certain portions of our lives. We practice what I call selective obedience. I will obey this because I can do this. When it, com when it comes to certain commandments that are inconvenient, uncomfortable for us, certain commandments that are hard for us to do, we shy away from them. And there is this inner lawyer inside of us trying to justify ourselves, trying to excuse ourselves. We do that so many times. It's about time to stop that. If we have problems with lust, confess that to God. If we have problems with pride, confess that with God. If you have problems with, with covetousness, co confess that with God. If you have problems with anger, confess that with God. If you have backslidden in your heart, confess that with God. If there is a spiritual dryness, if you are in a spiritual wilderness in your life, repent. Confess that with God. And the Bible promises that times of refreshing will come upon you. You know, one of the reasons why we should come to church is to have an encounter with God. And let me just tell you this, brothers and sisters. When you come here Sunday after Sunday and you don't have an encounter with God, you have just wasted your time. We come here to meet with our God. We come here to gather with His people. We come here because we desire the manifest presence of God. We come here because this is an expression of the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God all about? Romans 14 verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That is what the kingdom of God is all about.
And if we are in God's kingdom, guess what? We experience our lives. We have righteousness. We have joy overflowing. And we have the peace that surpasses all understanding. If that is not present, could it be that we are outside the kingdom of God? Could it be that we are playing adultery with this world? We come here with sincere and genuine hearts. If we come here simply to fulfill a Sunday obligation, the Lord knows your heart. It's not going to work. You can fool a lot of people. You can't fool God. So again, as we have a look at the standard of God, Jesus is saying lust equals adultery. Jesus is saying that a bad thought is just the same as a bad deed. Jesus states that the gravity of the sin of lust is similar to the sin of committing adultery. Now the phrase, looks on a woman with lust, for her has actually two schools of interpretation. I feel that it's worthy, it's worth actually taking a look at these uh, two possible interpretations because there is truth in all of this. First of all, here's the first interpretation. Uh, first in interpretation does uh, a word study of the word looks. Comes from the Greek word blepo. It is in the Greek present participle, which means continuous process of looking, not incidental or involuntary glance, but of intentional and repeated gazing. In other words, if you, if you look at a woman once, it's fine. But if you look at a woman or a man twice, thrice, four times, till finally... You've got big problems. Bible says, if you look at the woman with lust in your eyes, and again, it's not just the man, it could be the woman. If a woman looks at a man with lust, she has already committed adultery. Now, another possible translation or interpretation would be like this. It could, the, the phrase could be translated this way, make her lust for you. Make her lust for you. In other words, this involves flirtation. The point here is to stop being a flirt. So if we look at somebody with lust in our eyes, that's already adultery. And if you and I are flirting with somebody either through our actions or through our words, Guess what we're doing? We're actually sinning against God because we are seducing a person to ourselves, causing ourselves to be that physical attraction by this opposite sex. And again, that would be absolutely wrong. And this tells us, by the way, that we need to be very careful with the way we look. We need to be very careful with the way we dress. We need to be very careful with our words, even with our touching. I'm going to talk about something as a general principle. Generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, men are attracted by sight. Generally speaking. 
So what does this tell us about the women? This tells us that women need to be very careful. Now, you might say, well, I don't dress for men. I don't dress for other people. Well, fine. But at the same time, you need to dress in such a way that you do not become an object of temptation. This is part, actually, of our stewardship before God. That's why, and I'm not just saying this to the women, I'm also saying this to the men. Men need to be very careful also about the way they dress themselves. And so, again, we need to be very careful. Now, in the case of women, women are generally, generally attracted by continual touching. And so, here's a rule for the men most especially. Don't keep on touching the women. All right? I know there are some people who are so touchy, they're so clingy. You know, if you keep on doing that, as a general rule, that's, that's going to stimulate or, or do something to the woman. And again, you do not want to do that. The Bible says that we are to be very careful to be the very reason that a person becomes a stumbling block. Or rather, we become the stumbling block to a person. We were actually shown a millstone. Remember what Jesus Christ said? That if you cause somebody to stumble, it would be better to have a millstone uh, hanging on your neck. Do you know how big a millstone is? <coughs> when we went to Nazareth village, the millstone, actually it's used for crushing the grapes. There's a donkey, all right? It's circular, and there's a donkey that goes around, okay? Uh, the millstone is tied to the donkey. It goes around to crush the grapes. You know how big the millstone is? <coughs> it's probably this high. How thick is it? It's probably this thick. Now, can you imagine something this high? We're talking about a boulder this high and this thick hanging on your neck. Jesus is saying it's much better for you to have the millstone hanging on your neck than for you to cause somebody to stumble in sin. So basically, the point here is we all need to be very careful. Careful so that we do not become the cause nor the reason for somebody to sin against God. There's one commentary that states this. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after. Of course, again, as I mentioned to you, some people don't do it, you know, because they want uh, to be an attraction. But then again, as I mentioned to you, we just need to be very careful. Because that might not be the intention, but something might be happening in the mind of the opposite sex. And so, it says, again, let me just read it. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less, but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of the great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse sexual passions of young men. And how much greater still is the guilt of most of their mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. And there was one particular uh, thing that happened in a particular church. There was this mother who 
wanted to dress up her child in a very fashionable way. And probably the way she dressed up her child was in such a way that it became, she became quite an attraction. So one time, the mother was walking together with her daughter along the aisle, and all the men were just looking at this woman or at this teenage girl. And then the mother realized, I think I'm doing something wrong. So she started to change the attire uh, of, her, of her daughter. And when the daughter would walk next time around in the aisle, she would no longer, she would no longer have those stares coming from people. And so again, we just need to be careful. We have a stewardship given to us by God. Now, in the sermon, we have established what? God's transcendent standard of holiness. And we might say, wow, this is the standard of God. It's so high. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of Jesus. The whole point of Jesus is you can't do this. The whole point of Jesus Christ is this is humanly unattainable. These are my standards. These are my holy standards. I cannot bring down these standards. I cannot condescend to you and lower my standards for you. This is my standard. But hey, I have a solution for you. I've paid the price. My precious blood can cleanse and wash away all of your sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will, be, they will be washed white as snow. The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. You know the wonderful thing about grace? You can wake up every morning with a clean slate. Hallelujah. Amen. You can wake up every morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. You may have sinned yesterday. Or you may have sinned the other week. Or you may have sinned last year. But guess what? Though your sins be as scarlet, they're white as snow right now. The word here is, the operative word here is grace. And grace is what you and I need. But would you humble yourself before God and say, God, I see your standards. I continually stumble, I continually fall, I continually fail, Lord. Would you be humble enough to say, have mercy on my soul. Deliver me from this bondage. Deliver me from my sins, O oh God. Make me a new creation. Make me a faithful husband. Make me a faithful wife. Make me not commit fornication with, with my girlfriend or with my boyfriend. Make me not access internet pornography, Lord. Are we humble enough to be able to admit to God our weakness? Do you know that our, one of the things that God simply wants us to acknowledge is our own weakness and then He pours His grace upon us? I go back to the story of the tax gatherer and the Pharisee. The Pharisee was probably folding his arms in, in spiritual pride as he was looking over his shoulder and looking at the tax gatherer. And in spiritual pride, he said, I thank thee, O God, not like this tax gatherer. 
A tax gatherer, on the other hand, was, was putting himself at a distance before the temple, unashamed, or rather uh, totally, absolutely ashamed of his own sinfulness. And he was beating his chest. He was bowing his head. Embarrassed to raise his, his eyes towards, towards the temple. He said, he said, forgive me. Have mercy on my soul. You know, that is what God is looking for. Are you that kind of a person? Are you humble enough to admit your weaknesses? Or are you still defending yourself? Are you still arguing with God? Are you still allowing your, your inner lawyer to defend you? Don't do that. You will never receive grace. But if you humble yourself and ask for mercy, mercy it is, you shall receive. For our God is a merciful God. Our God is a gracious God. Amen? That is who our God is. And what a good time today because we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so may I ask that you right now take stock of yourself and ask God, Lord, is there anything wrong in my heart? Before I partake of the Lord's Supper, please, please do not take the bread and the cup of wine with, with a sinful heart. You need to remember what these things represent, the, the cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the priceless blood of Christ. The bread symbolizes His body, the body which became your substitute. So please, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, don't take it lightly. Don't take a, a mini snack this morning, which some of us are actually doing every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're just taking a mini snack. Don't do that, please. Come before God in repentance. Ask for forgiveness. And if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, please do so today. And He will forgive you and He will cleanse you and He will give you eternal life. He will write your name in the book of life. Salvation is not by good works. It is by faith. It is by grace through faith. So come to Him and he will cleanse you and wash you. So may I ask the worship team to come and please prepare our hearts right now. Thank you, Lord, for today. Your word is a hammer. Your word is a two-edged sword. Your word is fire, but your word is also water, for it cleanses and washes us, Lord, from all the dirt and filth of this world. And so we thank you, O oh God, because your word causes us, Lord, to draw near to you and seek your face. And thank you, Lord, that those who draw near to you, you will in no way cast out. For Lord, you are a gracious, loving, forgiving, merciful, compassionate God. And thank you, Lord, that though you are a God of justice, Lord, mercy is justice 
at the cross. And so we thank you. We are forever indebted to what Christ has done in Calvary. So we thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you also for the time spent to take stock of ourselves and come before you in repentance. Thank you, Lord, that we could celebrate what you have done for us through the Lord's Supper. And thank you, Lord, for hearts that have come to repentance, hearts that have confessed you as Lord and Savior of their lives. Thank you also for the opportunity, Lord, to, to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, may you be so kind to bless us, not because we're greedy, but because we want to partner with you in the work of evangelism and the work of the gospel. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Let's give the Lord a big hand.